for one last time. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 28. Book of Acts, chapter 28, and our text will be verses 17 through 31. This will be our final study in the book of Acts, at least for now. The final study, at least going through the text of the book of Acts. We began this study all the way back in August 2020. So that's about three, almost exactly three and a half years. Who uh, And throughout that study, we haven't been going through it. You know, we've taken breaks and things like that. But I went and counted, and in total, we have about 60 messages going through the book of Acts. How many people have been here for every last one of those messages? You know, I think I'm probably, <laughs> I may be the only one who has been. <laughs> uh, that's uh, just how it tends to go sometimes. But I hope you have been uh, blessed as we've studied through this book. I certainly know I have been. And this last section of the book of Acts, in some ways, summarizes and rehashes a lot of the themes that we've seen throughout the rest of the book. Uh, It closes the book off with the Apostle Paul in Rome, poised uh, to go to the ends of the earth. We see the continued theme of the rejection of the gospel by the Jewish people and thus opening the doors to the Gentile people. Uh, So many of the same themes that we've seen are repeated and we'll see that as we go through it. So let's read uh, through our text, uh, Acts chapter 28, verse 17 through 31. And it happened that after three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. And they said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brothers come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear what you think, for concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. And when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly bearing witness about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Christ, both from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. And some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others were not believing. And when they had disagreed with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people 
You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God was sent to the Gentiles. They will hear. And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence unhindered. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Our Father, we do thank you for the time that we've had studying through the book of Acts, this great chapter, this first chapter of the history of your great church that you have been building uh, throughout the world. I pray that as we would read it, we would recognize that it is not the end of anything. Rather, it is the beginning of the story that you are continuing to tell even through this day. I pray that we would recognize our part in it, that we would act consistently with what we have seen here, that we would be bold in our proclamation of the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as we may know, Paul has finally arrived to Rome. This is what the last several chapters had been building up to, Paul reaching Rome. The last probably about three years of his life, this has been his goal, to reach Rome. And there are a number of reasons that he wanted to do so. One, so that he could be a blessing to those saints who already were in Rome. But ultimately, he wanted to get to Rome so that he could continue on his missionary journeys, going further out than he had ever gone before to the very ends of the earth. And when Paul reaches Rome finally, it is perhaps not the way that he originally expected to, but he is there. He's chained to a Roman soldier, and yet he's granted some degree of freedom. He has his own quarters. He is able to go about uh, with uh, some freedom. And when he is there, he does the first thing that he usually did when he arrived to a new city, and that was to seek out the Jews. We saw this throughout the book of Acts, this principle of the proclamation of the gospel first to the Jew. It begins there. It is those people that the Messiah has come from. It is through those people that God had been speaking through the ages, and it is they who are the first to hear the announcement of the good news. All the way back in the book of Acts, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea. This is where the gospel came forth from, in the heart of uh, where the Jewish people lived. The Apostle Paul similarly says this in the book of Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek And as we see the missionary journeys of Paul going out into the Greek world, we see that the pattern is that he first seeks out his Jewish brethren, those uh, to whom are his brothers according to the flesh. Uh, And here we see he does the same thing. 
It happened after three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. So this would have been uh, probably uh, a dozen or so of the men. Uh, there were anywhere between seven and 14 synagogues, I think is what I saw the number was in Rome. Rome was a, a rather large city. I think about two million people lived there. And we hear two million people today and we think, yeah, that's a large city. Now imagine the ancient world where a large city, Atlantic would be a large city in the ancient world, right? Uh, two million people in Rome, a massive number, and there was a Jewish presence there. We read earlier on in the book of Acts that the Jews had been expelled, but it seems that expulsion had expired with the uh, instatement of the new emperor Nero, and the Jews were now allowed back into the city. And uh, that's one of the reasons there may have been tension between the Gentile church and the Jewish, uh, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians that we see in the book of Romans. But there's a Jewish presence there, and the leading men, the, those who would probably be leading the synagogues, were called to hear Paul. And Paul says to them, brothers, though I have done nothing against our people or the custom of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem to the hands of the Romans." He calls them brethren, and we see the great love that he has for his people. This love that is expressed in Romans chapter 1. He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I wish I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. So it is his desire that those who are closest to him would hear the gospel and believe. And I think here we see the principle in the book of Acts and in the New Testament of going to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. But I think there is a principle that can carry over for us as well. The desire, the attitude that we should have towards those who are closest to us to whom we might share the gospel with. There are many missionaries who may have many grand aspirations for going to all kinds of unreached countries and unknown peoples and uh, proclaiming the good news to them. And those are not wrong aspirations. However, those who have these aspirations may at the same time have never once confronted their closest friends, family, neighbors with the gospel. Those who are the closest to them. In fact, when we think of those who are closest to us, who must be confronted with the gospel, many of them, I think, can be found in our churches. Now, I, I would like to say here in Atlantic Gospel Chapel that this might not include any of us. I would love to believe that we are all believers, and I do think that that is the case. However, that's not true of all churches around the world, and it may not even be true of this church. There are people who go to church every Sunday, who clock in every, t every day that they're supposed to, who have a perfect attendance record, who have never once really grasped the good news of Jesus. They've never heard it proclaimed clearly, and they've never come to a saving knowledge of Christ. 
uh, we sometimes have the assumption that if someone goes to church regularly or maybe even discusses religious things, we may assume that they must be Christians. But this is a faulty assumption to make. Uh, just as Paul would be foolish to assume that, oh, the, those who are my Jewish brethren, they believe the Old Testament. They believe uh, that there is a Messiah coming. Therefore, they must Likewise, believe what I believe about the Lord Jesus. But we can't make that assumption. And it is those who are closest to us that we have to be prepared to present the gospel to. And to do it in an understanding, in an understandable way. And to have love as we do so. Just as we see with the Apostle Paul. Those whom he goes to first are those who are closest to him. So as he calls these brethren together... Uh, brethren according to the flesh, right? Brothers, he, he says this, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or our customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So he summarizes his imprisonment first by maintaining his innocence. We've seen Paul throughout his trials maintain his innocence, but this innocence that Paul has, I think, we see applied uh, to the other apostles that we see as well. Persecution began very early on in the Christian church. Within days of Pentecost, the apostles were being taken and charged with all kinds of things before the religious leaders. Remember the first time we see this happening was at the temple, at the beautiful gate. And Peter and John are going by and there's a man who is lame and they tell him to get up. And he stands up, begins rejoicing in the Lord, and they tell them how exactly it is this man could be healed, the power of the Lord Jesus. But then what happens? They're taken and they're arrested. Now what crime were they arrested for? And Peter even asks, uh, are we being put on trial for healing a man who was lame, right? Uh, am I guilty because this guy who could not walk is now able to walk? So we see the innocence that Christians have and that we should have, right? And that they have had throughout the growth of the church, doing nothing wrong except, and yet feel, uh, facing all kinds of of charges against them. Paul maintains his innocence. He says, I've done nothing against the people. He's not an insurrectionist. He's not a meddler. He's not a nuisance to them. Remember when he first got to Jerusalem, he was minding his own business. And in fact, he was partaking in the custom of the time of cleansing. Uh, when Paul was among the Jews, he went out of his way to do, uh, to do nothing that would needlessly offend them when it came to the customs of the law. He said, when I was among the Jews, I lived as a Jew. And that was true in Jerusalem. And he says that I've done nothing against the customs of our fathers. And yet I was delivered over to the Romans. And then when the Romans examined me, they did not see anything that I had done that was worthy of death. So even before the secular or the Roman government, there is nothing that he did. Paul committed no crime or offense that would justify the charges that were against him. And yet they were brought against him anyway. And this is often how persecution works, right? Uh, no, one, no one will ever be officially persecuted because they love God or because they trust in Jesus. 
No one will ever be persecuted because they love their neighbor. Those will never be the reasons that Christians are persecuted. Rather, they're going to be persecuted for any number of things. Within a few decades, even within a decade of Paul experiencing this, some of the charges that would be brought up against Christians uh, for persecution would be this. Christians would be charged with things like cannibalism, with incest and sexual immorality. They'd be charged as atheists. They'd be charged as separatists, those, pe- those people who hate humanity, who hate the rest of humanity. They'd be charged with political rebellion. Those are the reasons that Christians will be persecuted. One uh, speaker, a man by the name of Paul Washer, says this uh, when it comes to persecution. He says, we will be called things that we are not and persecuted not for being followers of Christ, but for being radical fundamentalists who do not know the true way of Christ, which, of course, is love and tolerance. You'll go down as the greatest bigots and haters of mankind in history. He goes on and says, you have the wrong idea of martyrdom and persecution. You think that these men were persecuted and martyred for their sincere faith in Christ. That was the real reason, but no one heard that publicly. They were martyred and they were persecuted as enemies of the state as child molesters, as bigots, as narrow-minded, stupid people who had fallen for a ruse and can contribute nothing to society. It's no wonder that we hear those very same charges presented today. And it's no wonder that many who would even claim the name of Christ would look at someone uh, sincerely trying to live out their faith and charge them with being those who do not know the way of Christ. And yet this is not something that is unexpected. And this is not something that should cause us to despair. For even the Lord Jesus himself says this, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, what a great encouragement uh, when we do face these things. And Paul, he may be facing all kinds of charges, but we can know that these things are not true. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's maintaining his innocence, the fact that there is no real legitimate reason that these charges are being brought against him is ultimately a hatred for him, his message, and the Lord who had commissioned him. So despite his innocence, he remained a prisoner. And this parallels what happened with the Lord Jesus. Remember when Jesus was brought before Pilate, he said this, you brought this man to me as one who incites rebellion to the people. Here's that charge again, right? Anything that might stick. He's a a rabble rouser and uh, a rebel. Uh, You bring me this man as one who incites rebellion against the people. And behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. That was said by Pilate uh, regarding Jesus, the man who would have him put to death. 
Similarly, uh, Peter, we already talked about Peter's innocence when he had healed the man, raised up the man who could, uh, was unable to walk. And what does he say? Uh, it is by the name of Jesus that this man stands before you in good health. Peter, in one of his letters, encourages Christians who are facing mistreatment and persecution with these words, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account to the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence, and to keep a good conscience so that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And that's the situation that Paul finds himself in here. And this won't be the last time he finds himself in that situation. It doesn't mean he doesn't maintain his innocence, but then he goes on and speaks to the real cause of this persecution that is against him. Uh, uh, We continue reading uh, in verse uh, 20. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you. For I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. What's the real reason that Paul is being imprisoned? Well, because he believes uh, because of that great hope that, uh, that Israel had been expecting, that great hope that Israel had been waiting for. At that point in time, the people of Israel had been waiting in anticipation for God to do what he had promised to do throughout the scriptures. They were waiting. They had gotten to a point in time in their history where they're looking around and saying, it can't possibly get any worse. God must act now. And God had acted in the Lord Jesus. And Paul is now saying, God has acted. This is the hope that we have been waiting for. The deliverance that God has promised has come. That is the reason that I am in these chains. So reading on, we uh, read in verse, uh, uh, verse 21. And they said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, Nor have any of the brothers come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. So they hadn't yet heard about Paul, or at least they hadn't yet heard uh, about the charges that were brought against him. Remember, Paul's ship, the ship that he was on, was the last one to set off before the winter. And it was the first one, probably, to take off once it became good sailing weather. So any messengers that might have been sent, Paul probably beat them there already. So they hadn't yet heard about Paul, and they were willing to hear him out. Verse 22, we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. So this sect, uh, often called the way. Sometimes they were called Christians, first called Christians in Antioch. The Jewish people were aware of that. There had already been a church in Rome for some time, for at least a few years now at this point. And uh, as it is, uh, as it is often the case, that which the Jewish people heard about it was not good. They were aware of Christianity and they knew that it was spoken against. So oftentimes, Uh, Well, this really does show how bad press can travel faster than good press, right? Are we more likely to hear good news or bad news? 
if there is some kind of new organization or group or something, uh, we're going to hear the bad news about it first. And oftentimes we can make up our minds about a movement or a belief or something like that long before we've even given it a fair hearing. And it doesn't help that the natural man is naturally bent against the things of God. So when the Jewish people hear about this new sect that has arisen, that are talking about the man who is dead and now alive named Jesus, who is their Messiah, well, they are wary of it. And yet, they're willing to give Paul a fair hearing. And that's where we get into this next section of Scripture. Uh, verse, uh, Verse 23, we read, And when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly bearing witness about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets, from morning until evening. So a great number turn up to hear Paul. They probably went back to their synagogues and told everyone, hey, let's go hear what this man has to say. And Paul preaches from morning until evening. You think my sermons are long. Uh, And testifying about the kingdom of God and of the Lord Jesus. And notice, he does the exact same thing that we see throughout the book of Acts. How is it that the apostles argued their case for the risen Lord Jesus? Well, they always started with what God has revealed with what he's revealed in the Old Testament, right? And even when it comes to Gentile audiences, they start with God and his creation, what he has done in that. So Paul, in talking to this Jewish audience, follows the same pattern that they'd been following for decades at this point, and he goes back to the Old Testament to explain Jesus from the law and the prophets, probably starting all the way back in Genesis 1, uh, uh, following through the line, seeing everywhere Moses, spoke of it, seeing all the promises that the prophets had made of it, how they are building up on one another, all of these things that we know about the Messiah. Uh, He's going to undo the work of Satan. He's going to be a prophet like Moses. Uh, He himself is going to be God. He himself is going to be rejected, Uh, going through all of this to convince the Jewish people. So he proclaims this gospel message. He preaches Jesus from the scriptures. He speaks of how he probably went into his own testimony of how he saw the Lord on the road. And we read of the response in verse 25. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others were not believing. So there's a mixed response. And that sometimes can, uh, well, There's nothing that takes the wind out of someone's sails is when he's maybe telling a great story to someone. They want that person to share in their excitement, and then they get a meh in response. Well, that, no, you're not excited. No, I'm not excited about it either. Thanks a lot, right? Uh, And that's kind of what Paul receives, a mixed response. Some were persuaded by the things that were said. Yeah, this makes sense. But others were not believing So, and this is how it is with gospel proclamations. Uh, It's anticipated, and we even see it in the ministry of Jesus. Now, there is no better preacher on earth than the Lord Jesus. There is no more convincing a preacher on earth than Jesus. There is no one who knew his audience better than the Lord Jesus. And yet, even when Jesus went out and preached, he had a mixed response, didn't he? 
And this was even foretold when uh, uh, Jesus was brought to the temple, even as a young child. This is what Simeon, the man who was at the temple, said. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and a sign to be opposed. Similarly, Jesus says, Do you suppose that I've come to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. There's always that mixed reception, and we see this playing out in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 14, we see uh, in the preaching of Paul, there are some who believed, but there were others who did not. And they stirred, and they were, uh, stirred up the minds of the Gentiles uh, as well and embittered them against the brethren. Acts chapter 19, we read how, of how Paul entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew. So even with this uh, extended period of time, there are those who did not listen. And we can expect similar results when it comes to our own proclamation. Whenever the gospel is preached, there will be some who believe and there will be others who reject. Rejection of the word of the Lord is not something that should dissuade us. And that's often what it does, right? Uh, when we uh, think about uh, various times we've shared the gospel and people have said, oh, it, that's nice. I'm glad you believe that. I'm glad you find some kind of meaning in that. But it really, eh, it's just not for me. We hear that and we can be dissuaded. And yet, we should not be surprised when that happens. It's something that, in fact, we should come to expect. When we look at the books of the Bible, and when we consider the books of the Bible, what they are really are God's messages to his people, and they're given through his prophets and apostles and things like that. When we read the book of Isaiah, what we're reading is God's message to Israel. And what was the response to the book of Isaiah in the days of Isaiah? Well, God had already told them even beforehand, and it's in the passage that we're going to read. They're going to be hardened of heart. They're going to hear, but not hear. They're going to see, but not perceive. They're going to become dull. They're not going to listen to you, Isaiah. And yet this is my task for you. Go out and proclaim this word. The Bible's filled with books and letters written to people who ultimately rejected the message of God. And yet, God still blesses the obedience of the messengers and their efforts to bear fruit. But he does it in his own time. And we can see this in the parable of the soils, right? We often think that, you know, we're somehow responsible for the results of the preaching of the word. If, uh, if you don't get enough people believing, well, you must have done something wrong. But that's not what we see in the parable of the soils. In the parable of the, so- of the soils, the, the seed is the word of God. And what does the sower do? He just throws it out and walks off, right? It's not, he's not the one ultimately responsible for causing that seed to grow. In fact, he can't cause it to grow. And we see a number of different responses to that same word. Some are 
picked away. Uh, some sprout seem to be alive, but then others will grow and, uh, and they will bear fruit, right? So, but what does the sower do throughout all of that? He sows it. There's another parable uh, of, of the, the story of a sower who goes out and sows seed, and then what's he do? He goes to sleep, right? Uh, so it's our job to preach the word and leave the results to God, and that's what Paul was willing to do. So we see that they did not agree with one another. There is a mixed response, and many began to leave after Paul. And Paul said this parting word to them, and this is from Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, they disagreed with one another in verse 25, and they began leaving after Paul had spoken one word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive, for the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. They've closed their eyes, lest they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I heal them. So the rejection of the gospel, it's uh, something that we may not necessarily care for, but we also need to uh, recognize that even the rejection of the gospel is not outside of the purposes of God. When we see someone reject the gospel, we sometimes put the fail, we might see it as a failure, a failure maybe on our part, right? Uh, maybe I didn't say the right things, or maybe I wasn't eloquent enough, or I wasn't convincing enough, or uh, something like that. It's my fault. I didn't do a good enough job. Something else we might do is consider it as a failure on God's part, right? We may think, well, God, what are you doing? Aren't you powerful enough to do this? Can't you take the heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh? God, uh, did you, you know, were you just not able to in this case? And that's sometimes how we can view it. And we can view God as a God who said, man, I, I tried everything I could, but just wasn't able to. And that's how we can sometimes view a rejection of the gospel. We may not put the second part out loud, but we may feel that way. But that is not the idea that we get from Scripture. We see uh, that Scripture clearly teaches that even in the rejection of the gospel, God is accomplishing his own purposes. We so often view the natural man as some kind of a, a neutral creature, right? Uh, we're set in neutral and we can either roll forward or we can roll backwards. And if God comes along and prods us forward, we'll go forward or, or something along those lines. Uh, but the reality is we are all wicked. We are all worthy of judgment. The natural state of all of us is rejection, hatred towards God. Uh, the Apostle Paul makes that clear in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. We are wicked. We're worthy of judgment. And left to our own devices, we would not have uh, either the ability or desire to turn to God in repentance and faith. And we see that God even has a purpose in the judgment of the wicked. And when we consider the wicked being judged for sin, what should it do? Well, as we spoke of this morning, it should cause us to glorify in the grace that God has towards us all the more. Because the reality is, uh, we aren't any better, we don't deserve any better, and but by the grace of God, we would be right along there with them. And I read this in our first hour this morning. 
What if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. And that's what we see here too. What does Paul say after he reads this from Isaiah? Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God was sent to the Gentiles, and they will also hear. How much more gracious is it when you see that those who have a claim to it, right, in some way, the Jewish people did not receive it, and yet God saw fit to bless you with that. Uh, It it just magnifies the grace of God all the more. However, God's purposes, even in this, does not take away the culpability of sinners, right? It does not take away our guilt. It does not uh, make our uh, rebellion, our rejection, any less willful on our part. It doesn't make the guilty any less wicked. Israel is blinded to the truth of the gospel, as we see here. Seeing, but not seeing. Rejecting the truth that was right in front of their face. Refusing to turn to the Lord and be healed. Right? Uh, in John's gospel, this very same passage from Isaiah is quoted. Jesus had performed many miracles that we see in John's gospel. They're called signs because they ultimately point ahead to a, a greater truth. They're pointing to Jesus and who he is and what he has done. And though he had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing him. And this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. As Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. There's a great warning to us in this, right? Uh, if one is continually exposed to the truth of the gospel, as those who saw the ministry of Jesus were, as those who sit under the preaching of the word are, if one is continually exposed to that truth and continually hardens themselves against it, there is a day coming where God will give that one exactly what they want, right? You will receive exactly what you want, and your heart will be hardened to the point of no return. Uh, an interesting illustration I saw once of the the man who uh, the man who would not be the man who planned to be converted at the eleventh hour, right? The man who is living his life, he goes about his early life, and he is confronted with the gospel. Say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, well, not right now. Uh, he gets older, gets married, has kids, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Today's the day of salvation. No, not right now. I've got too many other things I want to do. Become, reaches a, a middle age, uh, eventually gets older and older, has grandkids. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not right now. And then on his deathbed. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that point he says, I can't. And that's how it is Sometimes. God will give you what you want. God will give you what you want. And that's what we see here with the rejection of the Jewish people. But we also see that this rejection is not without purpose. 
Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God was sent to the Gentiles, and they will also hear. What does this rejection of the Jews of the gospel result in? The opening of the kingdom to the Gentiles. And this is another theme that we see throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament as a whole. The rejection of Israel results in the Gentiles coming to faith. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, uh, in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you are not wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So God is saying, don't think of you as, don't think that you're wiser than they are, right? God has his purpose in their hardening. It's not because they were dumber and it's not because you're smarter, but because God has his purposes in bringing the Gentiles into himself. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must go gather them as well. And we, I don't think there's any Jewish people in here, we should be rejoicing in that uh, as Gentiles who has come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in this period of time where the fullness of the Gentiles is being complete. And we know that that is not, and we know that that's not the final end to Israel. After the fullness of the Gentiles is complete, and then what does it say? And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. There's still a future for Israel. It's not as if God said, I'm just going to throw you away forever. I've got a new people now, right? Uh, the people of God have always been those who have the faith of Abraham, and yet God has not forgotten his promises to Israel that nation, that people. And we know that God will ultimately fulfill those promises as well. So we continue reading in verse 30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. So Paul has a two-year-long imprisonment. And, it's, and it ends on this note, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching concerning the Lord Jesus with all confidence and unhindered. And we think, hold on a second, isn't there more to the story? Right? Why was Paul there to begin with? So he could uh, meet Caesar. Why didn't Luke record that for us? And then what happened after uh, the Apostle Paul? Well, uh, what happened to him after that? What happened to the other apostles and disciples of Jesus? Well, Luke doesn't tell us much. We know he was in prison for two years. We can fill in some of the details from Paul's letters. So during this time, Paul wrote what are called the prison epistles. These are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Something else is that Paul did not consider his imprisonment a hindrance, right? Paul, when he was in prison, said, wow, what a great blessing, what a great way for the gospel to flourish, me being in jail, right? Me being imprisoned. Paul to the Philippians says this, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard. The praetorian guard, Caesar's guards, they knew why Paul was there. They knew that, hey, this man is here because of the hope of the gospel, the hope of the kingdom of God, the hope of eternal life. And everyone else, that mo and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have more courage to speak the word of the Lord without fear. During his imprisonment, he had the opportunity to share the faith with the household of Caesar. At the end of Philippians, he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Most powerful man in the world. And he was a very exceedingly wicked man, this particular Caesar, Nero. And yet, 
part of those who are part of his household believed. Something else that happens in Paul's imprisonment, he runs into an old friend, John Mark. We remember what happened with him. Uh, cousin of Barnabas, he was on the first missionary journey for a time, and he abandoned them. And when they're getting ready for the second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to bring Mark along. Paul says, we're not going to do that. This man is unreliable, and they go their separate ways. Well, this is what Paul writes to the Colossians during his imprisonment. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greeting, and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, with whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Wouldn't that have been quite the shock for the Apostle Paul, that uh, cowardly uh, my, that cowardly man who got homesick because he was so far away from home is now all the way in Rome ministering to him. What an amazing thing. And Mark remained clo- a close associate with the Apostle Paul to the end of his life. And the book of Acts does, though it doesn't go into maybe the details we would like, it does end on a positive note. The proclamation of Christ and his kingdom continued with all openness unhindered. The ending may seem abrupt. It may seem like there's more to the story to be told, right? And we do know a little bit more. Upon Paul's release, he may have accomplished his task in bringing the gospel to Spain. One of the earliest writings that we have, it's called the First Letter of Clement. It's written by the Church of the Romans to the Church of, Cor- to the church of Corinth. And they indicate that Paul ended up making it to Spain. Now, inspired scripture doesn't necessarily tell us this, but that may be a reliable tradition that we can uh, believe. Paul made it to Spain. He accomplished his goal. But this would, not, uh, this would also not be his last imprisonment. He would later be imprisoned under the persecution of Nero, the Caesar of that day. A great fire broke out in Rome in 64 AD, and Nero blamed the Christians for it, launching the first great persecution of the church. And this persecution claimed the lives of many Christians, including both Peter and Paul. Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down, feeling unworthy to die in the same manner that our Lord did. Uh, Fulfilling what Jesus said of him, Truly I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not want to go. Paul similarly was imprisoned a final time, this time with no prospect of deliverance and none of the comfort that he had in his first imprisonment, facing certain death. However, even this did not uh, take away, even in this he did not lose heart. Some of his last words are to Timothy. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also all who have longed for his appearing. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. You see, the book of Acts, we are reminded Uh, The story is not over, right? Because the book of Acts ultimately is not about Peter. It's not about Paul. It's not about the apostles. Sometimes it's called the Acts of the Apostles. 
But we remember that this book ultimately is not about them, but it's about the Lord. The book opens in this way. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and preach. He's talking about the gospel according to Luke. So what's the book of Acts about? All that Jesus continued to do and preach. Acts is ultimately about Jesus, what he continued to do, what he continued to preach, and how he continues to do that even to this day. The book may be over, but the story is still being told. And, uh, and it's being told through the same means. The teaching of who Jesus is is grounded in those Old Testament scriptures. They anticipate the coming Messiah. They tell of who he is and what he has done. It is on these scriptures the apostles rested their case. The New Testament contains the inspired teachings of the apostles. We may not have a living apostle with us today, but we do have their teachings. We do have everything they said that the Lord has seen fit to preserve for us even to this day. Christ has not left us alone. Though he has ascended into heaven and we await his return, he has sent his Holy Spirit, the very same Holy Spirit that filled the, acts, that filled the apostles on Pentecost, fills us today. He is the one who guides, the one who guided their paths, the one who caused them to speak boldly. That is the very same Holy Spirit that is living in every believer today. And the mission of the book of Acts is still being carried out. Jesus said this, uh, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. That gospel is still going out. The remotest parts of the earth are still being reached. The Holy Spirit is still at work and the Lord Jesus is still on his throne. And we are all part of that story. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this great book of Acts this book of the Lord Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and what he continues to do. We're thankful that you are still telling this story through us. Though it may not be written in a book that we can pick up, it is being written in heaven's courts, it's being written in history today. We're thankful that you have seen fit to bring us in as part of that story. We pray that we would live up to what you have called us to be, we pray that we would continue to trust in you, that we would continue to obey that which the apostles have spoken. We pray that we would be blessed as we ponder on the story that you have told and continue to tell. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.